I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. Field Notes is a series of short books published by Biblioasis conceived by its uh, founder, Dan Wells. They range in rhetorical essays, uh, long-form journalism, polemics, case studies, or anything in between. The series began last fall with the publication of Mark Kingwell's On Risk and continued in the spring of this year with Ronaldo Walcott's On Property. In the summer, they published On Decline by Andrew Potter, who joins me now to discuss the notion that the West is in decline, that for all our faith in the Enlightenment and reason and progress, we're on the way down. I'll ask Andrew what decline is, because I tend to think that means extinction. He's got a clever line in the book that we didn't progress upward, going up a ladder through accomplishment and achievement. Rather, we stumbled into a buffet. There's uh, a lot uh, of thoughtful stuff in the book, and then when he gets uh, to how our society and culture has been affected by COVID-19, well, a lot of... uh, What he's thought about has come to pass. Inequality has made sure the effects of COVID aren't shared equally. It's an often entertaining book, one that makes a lot of sense and uh, that uh, doesn't foretell the best of us. Andrew Potter is an associate professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. He was uh, managing editor, then editor-in-chief of the Ottawa Citizen between 2011 and 2016, Before that, he was a columnist in McLean's Magazine. He is also uh, a former director of the uh, McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. He is the author of The Authenticity Hoax, How We Get Lost Finding Ourselves, which he was uh, first on the program with when it was uh, published in 2010. And uh, with Joseph Heath, he co-authored The Rebel Cell, Why the Culture Can't Be Jammed. He's not on Twitter, and I'll ask him about that. Please uh, welcome back to the Plant Online program, Andrew Potter. Professor Potter, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Pretty good. Yourself? Good, thank you. So you open the book um, um, n- nearly listing everything bad that's happened since 2016. And it, it's uh, at once amusing um, because, you know, we forget all of the things that, that have happened. You know, uh, so much has happened in, in the last f- four or five years. Um, and, yes, we do buy into the argument that it's been downhill ever since. At the same time, you make the point that these things are cyclical, um, and we're probably loath to admit that, because every 10 years or so there, there's been some sort of, I don't know how to put it, a correction, if you will? Yeah, some kind of correction or, uh, or you know, break in the continuum or something like that, yeah. And and, and so why do you think it is that we, we um, I guess, forget or, or fail to see that? Is it because there's just so much stuff that's happening? Uh, yeah, that, that, that's an interesting question. I think, you know, what, one of the one of the interesting things of, of going back and, uh, you know, even when I was just sort of rereading the book, when I started doing interviews for it, and I would read and I would think, oh, my God, that, that happened in 2016, or that was yeah. that all happened in, in 2017, you know, things that I thought happened like six months ago, right? That would have been four yeah. years ago, and you totally forget about it. Um, why do we forget? Um, partly because I think... Uh, you know, our, our, we have a natural tendency to sort of just um, forget the bad and remember the good, right? Mm-hmm. That's why nostalgia is such an appealing, uh, appealing memory. Um, but also, I think um, I think that the world we live in, um, the, um, the 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 internet and uh, sort of uh, social media mediated world we live in, um, flattens our sense of time and history, and really makes makes everything sort of seem like we're living in this sort of like eternal present, almost like goldfish. So I think, I think we tended to sort of move on from, from one scandal or outrage or tragedy to the next and, yeah. uh, and forget a bit. It's a, it's a good question, though, why that's the case. 
And, and so when, when you talk about decline, um, one, one who hasn't read the book might assume that means death or extinction. But what, what is the, the decline of which you speak in the book? Right. So, so, the, so the book's called On Decline, right? And it's intended to explain just what, what exactly I mean. Because so, as you point out at the beginning, right, uh, my, my argument is that we are in, in uh, a state of decline. Yeah. And so what does it mean? And I want to make it clear, it, it's, not, it's not like Holly, a Hollywood apocalypse, right? This isn't... Um, this isn't 2012, or this isn't you know the day after tomorrow, uh-huh. or it's not it's not you know the moon exploding or aliens arriving and destroying the world or anything like that, right? And it's not a Holocaust. So, um, what it is is um, a, gr- a buildup of um, crises and a buildup of um, uncorrected problems um, that that make it harder and harder to uh, to achieve what we call progress, right? And what I mean most specifically by it is that um, if, if, if civilization advances by us being able to um, resolve ever more complicated collective action problems um, in a sort of technical economic sense of that, um, what I'm arguing is that our capacity to do that is sort of, um, uh, you know, run, run into a wall of some kind. That we're actually, um, collective action problems are going unresolved, um, problems are building up. And they're they're leading to uh, a broader state of, state of generalized decay. And uh, my claim is that's only going to get worse. That it's not a it's not a momentary pause in our ability to, to make progress. It's it's something more more permanent. And it just seems, as I'm reading the book, that, that um, the end date for us, um, you know, it, it's much closer than it was, say, maybe you know, a generation before, or or even say 150 or 200 years before. I mean, it, it, one worries uh, about where we're headed. Um, I guess it, 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 is the end nigh. Um, <laughs> I, I hope not. I mean, um, I have kids. Um, I'm pretty young kids, uh-huh. uh, and so I think if, if I genuinely thought that um, you know the apocalypse was nigh, right, that we we're headed towards you know mass extinction of the human race, something like that, I probably wouldn't have had kids. I, I probably wouldn't spend my time writing books, or <laughs> I'd probably be taking a bunker somewhere, right? Yeah. Um, so it, it's not that the end is nigh. It's that, um, and, and I try to make that clear at the end of the book, that this is not the end, right? This is not the end of, uh, end of humans. It's not the end of technology. What it is, though, is um, the end of this, this period we've been in for, you know, over 100 years, close to 200 years now, where we kind of assumed that life was just going to keep getting better yeah. and that um, our standard of living would keep growing and to some extent insulate us from the consequences of our beliefs, the consequences of our actions. And that um, the odds are we're going to head back to what life was like for our ancestors, right? Two, three, four hundred years ago and before that, which is um, a rougher life, uh, a, uh, a life that's sort of more closely connected to the cycles of the, of the, of the earth and uh, the realities of living on Earth, um, and less, less insulated from, um, from the, the, the truth of our beliefs and so on. So, so it, it's not, it, the end isn't nigh, but it just means that life's going to get more difficult, and, and I think um, it's going to continue that way. There's a great line in the book that you have where, where you say that we didn't climb a ladder, but we stumbled into a buffet. Right. Um, yeah, it, and that's basically me trying to reinterpret to reinterpret um, a, a passage from Tyler Cowen's uh, little manifesto that he wrote about a decade ago. Tyler Cowen, the uh, the economist uh, and, and famous famous blogger, um, where he says that um, 
the reason why we've been in this sort of period of stagnation, uh, what he calls the great stagnation from, from you know, uh, the early part of the mid-20th mid century until today, mm-hmm. is that, is that he, he says we, we, um, we picked all of the low-hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. And by that he means that what we did was we basically found a lot of free land, um, mostly North America, and by free I mean stolen, sure. right? And we connected that to uh, a, a very uh, new and very cheap forms of, forms of energy, largely electricity and fossil fuels. And we harness that to um, machines, right? Basically, you know, internal combustion engines and complicated machines to make stuff. And once you do that, right, you get, you get very quick gains in productivity and standards of living and so on. And what, what Cowan argues is that, you know, those, we've sort of run out, we've exhausted the limits of what, what can be achieved through, through those things, and we're sort of waiting for the next, the next, the next thing. And I sort of reinterpret that to say, like, what a lot of people thought was that progress was a ladder. That is, once you sort of figure things out through reason, you've climbed the ladder, you can kick it away, yeah. and you're now at a higher level of development, a higher level, level of human achievement. And I just sort of, you know, reinterpret Tyler's thing. What, what we actually did, we didn't, we didn't climb a ladder of reason and kick it away. What we did was we walked into a room that was full of, full of, full of food. We've eaten all the food, and now we're spending a great deal of time, um, you know, um, tying the kitchen up in knots over uh, regulations and, and rules and so on and wondering, you know, why the food isn't coming faster. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's, that's sort of the metaphor I'm playing with. Yeah. So you, you write in the you, you tell us in the book about um, the, uh, how we got to the Enlightenment and, and this age of reason. And, and as we've seen in, in recent years, this reason has, uh, I guess, taken a life of its own or, or, or uh, better put, probably taken its life. And um, it's been co-opted by people to, to make it mean what they want. And, and um, this, this antipathy to reason, how did that happen? Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting question. And it's um, how, uh, who you tell, how you tell that story and, and, uh, and who sort of agrees with you depends on where you're coming from. I mean, there's a part of the story, which is that um, reason sort of went off the rails almost right away uh, post you know, French Revolution, um, when uh, the, uh, the the pretenses of the the pretext of the French Revolution sort of went awry almost right away with the terror and so on, right? So, so the, the values of uh, the Enlightenment values of the French Revolution kind of like revealed themselves to be sort of bogus from the very start. Um, but but more problematically, you know, coming out of the Second World War, the um, the obvious connection between uh, technological reasons um, and war making. Uh, and mass mass killing, um, it was hard to deny. And so a lot of uh, people, um, in particular on the left, um, you know, saw that as uh, saw that basic alliance between rationality and, and, and mass murder as, as fatally flawed, as a fatal part, as a fatally flawed uh, element of rationality itself, and sort of turned it back on it. Right? So you had the whole counterculture and so on, the irrationality of the counterculture. Uh-huh. Um, but but in in more recent years, right, last sort of twenty thirty years and so, we've seen um, that that left wing suspicion of reason or hostility towards reason um, shift sides, right? Now it's yeah. the right that uh-huh. uh, is uh, you know happy to uh, you know claim that um, we live in a uh, you know there, there's there's the fact what was that term of I think Rumsfeld I think it was about um, you know the uh, the, the fact based. Uh, community, right? Or the evidence-based community being 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 foolish, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it's definitely uh, the right more than any any side has come to sort of simply deny uh, deny reason, deny truth, uh, deny facts. So it's 
it's been an interesting trajectory and in, in the whole story for it. I'm, I don't I don't think I do a great job of telling you know the complete story on that. I'm sort of just trying to mark mark the plot points along the trajectory, and I think there's still work to be done on figuring out just why that was the case. And, and so, um, do, do we have a, a, a if, if we consider life itself in cycles? Um, if it's shifted from the left to the right, could it go back, say, or 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 um, does the right, say, have uh, you know a province over this, you know, and 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 um, I mean, do, do, do we still doubt reason, if you will? Uh, yeah, I mean, so could it go back? It could. I mean, I have to say, I'm surprised that it happened, um, mm. in, in the sense that you know. 15 years ago, I wrote a book with um, Joseph Heath called, called The Rebel Cell, which was about countercultural politics yeah. uh, and the connection between countercultural politics and consumerism. And one of the points we make in that book is that there was nothing necessarily left-wing about the counterculture. That, there, that, there were, that while the, the left and the counterculture happened to go hand-in-hand, and there, were sort of an, there was an obvious alliance between it, there was no obvious logical connection between um, being a counterculturalist and, and being on the left. Yeah. Um, and but it didn't really occur to either of us at the time that you might see an actual shift in the valences there. But one of the sort of things, and I think in a lot of ways, um, the most interesting contribution I make in this book to sort of the contemporary debates about stuff is to point out that the, the whole valences of countercultural politics have completely shifted, where um, the left is now the, the man. Right? They're yeah. the, they're the authoritarians. They're the, they're the ones who set rules. They're the ones who are are almost quasi-religious, religi- uh, there's a sort of quasi-religiosity in their, in their pronouncements and their, 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 um, their rules and the, the you know, the um, uh, strictures around, around what you can and can't say and so on. And the, um, the people sticking it to the man, right, um, mm-hmm. you know, violating norms, um, engaging in counter, uh, you know, non-conformist behavior, it's on the right, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's sort of the appeal of the alt-right simply is just that a lot of this stuff about, you know, using sexist language or racist language, it's not because they're sexist or racist, it's because they like the fact that they're sort of like, you know, um, embarrassing uh, the uptight stick-in-the-mud leftists. Yeah, yeah. What uh, what is it like for you? Because this is the other fascinating thing. As I read your book, um, to, uh, to revisit your thinking and seeing how it changed, if any, if at uh, all. So. Yeah. So, so I, I think the most um, obvious way things have changed, and I believe you and I talked about this. My uh, my last sort of serious book, uh, The Authenticity, which came out about a decade ago. Yeah. I, I think you actually interviewed me for that. Yeah. I did, um, yeah. Uh, in that book, um, I the last the conclusion you might recall is sort of like this um, very sort of naive, but sort of uh, you know I, I sort of have this this call for 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 progress and reason and uh, you know no nostalgia and and so on. And in that book, I also sort of like I'm I'm, I'm very skeptical about people like Cass Sunstein, for instance, who are um, afraid of, of the uh, effect on reason of, of the internet and so on. I mm-hmm. kind of like really poo poo that and say, oh, you know, it's democracy and there's information. What could be wrong? What could be, what could be more, what could be better for democracy than, than information, right? <laughs> uh, you know, and, and 10 years on, um, this is, I, I've just simply become much more, not just skeptical, uh, just much more uh, cynical and, and disheartened about where things have gone to the point where I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not embarrassed by that chapter, but I was wrong. Right. I was simply wrong about where things would go. 
uh, I think uh, the United is manifestly uh, a force for uh, not good in this world, um, especially for politics. It's, 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 it's toxic to politics. It's toxic to relationships. It's toxic to uh, wor- the workforce. And, uh, and nostalgia has just taken over. And uh, reason has had a much heavier run of it than I thought it would, yeah. um, for the reasons I kind of try to explain in the book yeah. that I that I certainly didn't uh, didn't expect. What, so you mentioned the internet, which which is another fascinating part of the book. Um, you mentioned all these ills that we obviously know about now. Could we have foreseen that, say, ten, fifteen years ago? Um, I think we could have, um, and probably should have. Um, because the warning signs were there. Um, that is, um, anyone who's ever, uh, you know, gone to a public bathroom stall and seen what people write on the walls when they're anonymous, right? Mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. Uh, or just seen, um, you know, even Plato, you go back to Plato, and there's a, Plato has a myth called the Ring of Gyges, right, about, you know, where he speculates about how someone behaves under the, if, if they had a ring that could turn them invisible, right? Would, would they continue to do good or would they, or would they uh, behave, uh, would, they follow the, would they follow evil, right? Um, and I think people knew the obvious answers to that. And, but what I think we didn't really appreciate was the extent to which, um, so, so I think there were signs that the Internet would ha- could have a toxic effect if you allow an- anonymity. Where, where I think we never really saw happening was the extent to which um, social media and the, the triggers of social media, likes and saves and retweets and that kind of thing, would, um, would really trigger the status-seeking and identity-seeking uh, aspects of our psyche. I think that was really underrated. Uh, and I think it's just it's so obvious now, just the way um, all of the uh, the negative aspects of what I call system one thinking, right, mm-hmm. um, are triggered by social media. And I think that's something that um, you know we might have thought hard about, but but wasn't obvious. Um, but but you know um, if, if if you're if you're, I, I think we just simply weren't cynical enough about human motivations and human behavior. Yeah. We should have been. Yeah. Um, so so you, you as you mentioned in the book, you're no longer on social media. Um, <laughs> Is your is is life better for you? Uh, it is. Yeah. I mean, I, sh- I should I should be um, I should be honest. Uh, I have an Instagram account that I use for posting occasional pictures of my kids mm-hmm. uh, that has about fifty followers or something. And if I get if I get more, I'll probably delete it. Um, but yeah, the main thing I, I deleted Facebook a few years ago and I deleted Twitter. The reason I deleted my Twitter account, um, you know, was uh, a year ago or so. I was pushing my daughter, who was four at the time, on a swing in a park, quite literally while carrying on an argument on Twitter with somebody. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I, I, my blood was boiling. They were, they were being what I thought was a troll, and I, you know, uh-huh. I got angry. And at one point, my daughter was like, Dad, come, come play in the sandbox with me. And I, and I snapped at her. And I was like, just in a minute, you know? Yeah. And then she started to cry, and I realized, this is psycho, right? This yeah. is completely psycho. So I deleted my account. Uh, I have I have a burner Twitter account that I use to follow a few uh, news things, but it's the, the account is locked and it and it has no followers. So if I if I, if I tweet anything, it goes it goes into the the, the ether. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my life is manifestly better uh, without social media. And, it, and it, sorry, go ahead. Pardon me. The um, it, it, the book also talks about COVID. I mean, I guess it's inevitable in this day and age that you have to look at. Um, COVID through decline is is COVID a simple a, a, um, a symptom of decline? Uh, I believe our uh, yeah. So um, the, re- the, the the interesting thing about COVID sort of fits into the story in in two ways. One of which is um, 
my uh, the book is in a lot of ways an attempt to explore what William Gibson means by the jackpot in his book uh, The Peripheral. Uh, William Gibson, the, the um, sort of science fiction cyberpunk author from Vancouver, uh-huh, right? Yeah. So one of his books has, has this idea of what he calls the jackpot, which is a sort of very thinly disguised decline of, of civilization. And in, in, in his book, the, the Peripheral, from three or four years ago, four, I guess four years now, he actually says at one point, he has one character describe what happened, and the character says something like, you know, it wasn't, you know, comets crashing into the Earth, it wasn't like an asteroid, it wasn't global warming, it was, it was just a whole buildup of a lot of things, including a number of pandemics that never really panned out to be the big one, but were bad enough, right? Yeah. And it seems like completely, um, utterly prescient of him to have included that line in there, right, of a pandemic, like, and so, so that kind of like partly triggered it. And then because part of my problem or, or the, the, um, my argument is that what's going on with the client is the um, demise of our ability to sort of like resolve collective action problems. Well, global warming is one major collective action problem, but other collective action problems are, are things like uh, public health, right? Mm. Getting vaccinated, engaging in uh, mask wearing and lockdowns and that kind of thing. And uh, the struggles we've had with that, the struggles with state capacity and so on, I think those are all symptomatic of the problem. And so that's what I try and do with the pandemic is, is I try not to give too many hostages to fortune there. I mean, there's a few, there's a few things that sort of already are dated in that, as you probably, probably noticed. Um, but what I try to do is sort of show how, regardless of the specifics of how certain countries answered uh, the pandemic or not, that there's a general series of questions that are that, that are uh, raised by our responses that um, can be sort of credibly slotted into this idea that we're, we're, we're running out of our ability to, to resolve um, very hard hard problems that our society faces. Yeah, and, and it, it, that's the other thing as I was reading the book. You, you do um, uh, mention a couple of things where, where um, responses to the pandemic um, were wrong. And and uh, this, this begs another question that you ask at the, at the, near the end of the book. Um, when we do sort of the evaluation of, of how we've reacted to the pandemic, w- will there be changes to our institutions, our systems? And, and um, I, I don't know, I, I guess, um, are, are you optimistic that um, some good might happen as a result? I, I have to be honest, I'm not. Um, and that sounds very cynical and snarky and so on. Um, but I just... I'm not. I'm not persuaded. Um, and here I'm going to talk specifically about Canada. Um, yeah. I'm not persuaded that we have the institutions we need to properly learn from, from this. Um, and probably that's historical. Looking back, you know, just and not that not not that big a history. Just looking at how SARS happened. Mm-hmm. There was a big. There was a, a. There were federal and provincial inquiries into SARS, and uh, there was stockpiling of. Uh, PPE and so on, and we let it expire, right? Um, And and so I think that part of it, the capacity is not there at the federal and provincial levels. Uh, And also it's, there are serious um, problems with um, governments that want to do strategic long-term planning for um, low uh, probability but high uh, risk Event, mm. right? Um, they don't get rewarded at the at the uh, ballot box, yeah. right? Um, there, there's absolutely no question in my mind that that if a government had done what needed to be done uh, on on the, the pandemic planning side of things, 
you know, if, if we had found out about it when I was a newspaper editor that you were spending, you know, tens of millions on stuff that was going to waste, we would have written a story, you know, yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars in masks thrown in garbage because the government, you know, bought them and didn't use them, right? So, so I think we, ha- we have a problem in our society, which is um, the, the way the media um, and people uh, respond to government efforts. And that's something that uh, could only be fixed by moving to a very competent technocracy. And uh, I'm not sure either of those things, uh, either aspect of that, competent or technocracy, are, yeah. are, are in the office. Yeah. But I, I think there, there are big structural uh, obstacles to us planning probably for these sorts of things in the future. So as we learn through the pandemic, inequality, um, uh, you know, is something that, that, that uh, we saw starkly. Um, during the pandemic, um, and that, that's something that we're, we're thinking about, obviously. And, and as you write in the book, this inevitable decline won't be evenly distri- distributed as well. And um, I, I don't know. I was reading the book, and as, as much as enjoying it, um, that worried me. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it worries me too. Uh, I, I think this is just almost like an analytic fact, right? That um, troubles. Troubles fall disproportionately on those uh, least able to uh, manage them, um, and uh, I think that's going to be true of global warming. Um, it, it, it's an interesting sort of, um, and, and to me, that, that line I'm sort of riffing off uh, another aspect of England Gibson's book, The Peripheral. Uh-huh. You know, the, the, the future, the twenty of twenty two hundred, twenty two fifty or whatever, whenever the sort of the, the post Jack White era is. Um, there's actually still people around, and very wealthy people, and technologically advanced people, but. It's also the case in, in Gibson's book that uh, 80% of humanity has died out. Mm. Um, I don't think 80% of humanity is going to die out. I, I think something very, very serious would have to happen to that. Uh, that, that I, I don't, I don't, I don't foresee. But you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a futurologist. But I don't think it's going to happen. But what I, I, I do see a situation where um, you know, just the, the the downsides of all of this just fall disproportionately on on on, on the poor and the. Um, uneducated and, and so on. Uh, I think that's just that's the fact of the way the way the world is evolving right now. What's fascinating as I'm reading your book, Andrew, is um, you take all these things that are happening in the world, whether it be you know uh, historic or political, as well as what's happening in the zeitgeist, what's happening in popular culture, and you, you seem to bring it together. Do you ever read for pleasure? Um, you know, I only read for pleasure. Um, that's the uh, that's the irony of all this. Yeah. Um, is that uh, when when I got asked I got asked to write the book by uh, Dan Wells, the editor of WA, who's mm-hmm. putting out this sort of pamphlet series for, uh, for, for for sort of the pandemic themes relating to the pandemic, and he asked me if I was interested in something, and I kind of said, well, I don't know if I got anything, and I thought about it for a bit, and I kind of looked at sort of what I'd been reading, what I'd been writing about, and realized that they were all kind of pointing in the same direction. I just hadn't. I hadn't put them together, right? But but basically, if you take the cyberpunk stuff I was reading from William Gibson, you take you know my favorite uh, futurists like Robin Hanson and, and uh, you know Tyler Cowen, and you add that to like Joe Heath, who's a friend of mine, mm-hmm. a philosopher who's written on reason, it's like oh, this is everything I've sort of written and thought about is all pointing into decline. So all I'm really doing in that book is sort of like saying, okay, this is where I think everything that I think is smart that I've read recently is pointing. Tell me if I'm wrong. Um, and mm. so if someone to come along and say, you know, you got it all wrong, Potter, we are like, great, I'm happy to hear it, but show me where. But, yeah. but do I read pleasure? All the time. Uh, <laughs> everything, 
I mean, I read a lot that I don't like, but um, I, uh, it, it, a lot of this just came out of what I was sort of reading for pleasure, unfortunately. So, so then, then one wonders, um, ten years hence, um, if if you're all wrong, I mean, it's probably it'll probably be a good thing that you were wrong, but um, do you enjoy when 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 you have to say, look back at your work and 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 see. Um, where you might have, say, made fault or, or, or um, revisiting yeah. your work even? I mean, one would find that, uh, I don't know, that I don't like looking back at things no. that I've done, but <laughs> you, you certainly have done this in, in, with this book. Yeah, I really appreciate that, that, that question because um, I have to be honest, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 50 now. Um, when I was a younger man, uh, not much younger, but like when I was writing in, in uh, like for instance, I read the, wrote the, wrote the, wrote the, co-wrote The Rebel Cell with Joe uh-huh. I was in my 30s, and a lot of the stuff I was reading in that, it was really important to me to be right. Um, and and I was really insecure about uh, my ideas. And, um, you know, if, if I would sort of react badly to, like, negative reviews or, uh, you know, counter-arguments, something like that, and, and sort of feel I had to defend it. Um, part of it is getting older and realizing, you know, um, we're all flawed beings and we're all just sort of figuring stuff out. Um, I, I'm, less, I'm less vested in this with my own, like, I think I'm right, but, you know, yeah. someone asked me the other day, you know, like, you know, he said to me, is that only about, like, two-thirds sold in your argument? I said, oh, yeah, that's about the two-thirds, I'm about two-thirds sold on my argument as well, <laughs> right? Um, the problem is, the two-thirds that I'm sold on changes every time I sort of read through the book or anything like that, right? Um, so, so, uh, it's a long way of saying, you know, if, if I'm wrong, um, so much the better, uh, and, uh, and I, I, I'll have you write a book in 10 years about, uh, you know, uh, on decline the sequel, right? Like um, why everything I wrote 10 years ago was, was wrong. And, you know, I'm, I have no, I have no um, concerns about being about, about that on this front. I, I, this was such a pleasure speaking with you again, Andrew. Congratulations on this book. I liked it a lot and uh, continued good luck with it. Thanks, Joe. And uh, keep up the good work. You're doing great work for writers in this country. I appreciate it all. The book is called On Decline. It is published by Biblioasis. As author uh, Andrew Potter joined me on the line from Montreal in Vancouver, I'm Joseph Plotov.